the historical trustworthiness of the scriptures. The original scriptures were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek. Is what we have in front of us today essentially a true and accurate presentation of the message of Isaiah, for example, or of Moses that he wrote in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or Luke as he wrote his gospel, as he wrote the book of the Acts, or even the Apostle Paul, his letters that circulated to the churches of the first century. Is there evidence to support the historicity of the text that we have today? You may even wonder, especially many in the younger generation may even wonder, why a book in the first place? Well, we live in time and space. Everything that we feel like we know is filtered through the filter of time and space. Something that happened yesterday, we have to either remember it ourselves or we take it on the testimony of others, or something was written down, we made a note to ourselves or recorded in some way a record of that event so that we could remember it. We do this with our financial dealings. We do this in our workplaces everywhere. That's part of living in time and space. You may say, well, why didn't God just reveal himself some way that everybody has it? Nobody has to read a book and it's available for everyone. God has indeed spoken to us and is speaking to us every single day of our lives to every human being on planet Earth. God is speaking. Listen to this from Psalm 19 by King David. He wrote centuries ago, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is heard throughout the ages. Their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Then if you flip back a few more pages, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills all the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you you set in place, what are mere mortals that you would think about them, human beings that you would care for them? Those two Psalms, 8 and 19, and there's Romans chapters 1 and 2. There is a witness that God has given of himself that is not in a book. It's called general revelation. Nature itself, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the evidence is so powerful there for a creator, for an intellect, for a personal being who has created all that we have. He would be personal because if he has created the human race, he would not be less than human. If we consider humans to be the highest of the animal kingdom because of our gift of personhood, intellect, emotion, and will, then we would not expect the Creator to be less. So we have a personal God who has incredible power, incredible intellect, goodness. All of this world seems to be created with us in mind. So we have general revelation, plus we have the general revelation of human nature itself. Within ourselves, we see this consciousness. We are self-aware. We can think of ourselves and ask ourselves questions about ourselves, something that the animal kingdom does not do. Animals move and live and have their existence as part of their environment. They respond and react to it instinctively as part of it. Whereas we can step outside of ourselves, we wonder about reality and truth and God and immortality and morality, which brings us to another area of general revelation, and that is conscience. We wonder about good and evil. Now, the lion sitting out on the uh, plains watching the wildebeest go by or the zebra go by, he's not having discussions about, is it ethical for us to go out and eat that wildebeest there? I, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that. They don't have those kind of discussions. We do, though. We wonder about right and wrong. Every culture group in all the world that's ever been found has always had a sense of ought. 
there are certain behaviors that are wrong, shameful, that are to be avoided and even to be punished. And then there are other behaviors that are to be encouraged and rewarded, taught to our children. Where do these come from? Conscience, consciousness. And of course, the sun, the moon, the stars around. That is all a part of general revelation. God has created this world as it is. We live in a world of time and space. It's a closed system ruled by morally neutral natural law. And so if we are going to know about a God that is supernatural, a God who supersedes, who comes from outside this natural system, it will be because that God enters into our world. We are unable to leap out of this one. Even in our greatest imagination, it is very difficult for us to do. We long to because the Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. So we think about eternity. We think about immortality. We think about a spiritual realm, but we are unable to make that leap with total knowledge and understanding. We can see a lot in general revelation, but if we were going to learn more specifically about our God, and particularly about his plan of redemption, his desire to draw human beings into a relationship with himself, then God himself would have to step into time and space, act and speak, reveal himself and carry out this work of redemption that the whole Bible is about. That plan had to be carried out in time and space. It had to be restored by another man. And that man was, of course, the Messiah. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, everything points to this Messiah, this Redeemer, this righteous branch that God would send to reconcile humanity to himself. Those who want to know God now have that ability to be reconciled to God based on the merits and the atoning work of Messiah. All of that happened, though, in time and space and history. So how do we find out about it? How does that information get passed from generation to generation in the commonest way that we know? Through language, through books, through writing. That is why, then, we come to the question of the reliability of the Scriptures. How do we know that we are reading their words and that the history that they wrote about is accurate, true history? The Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures were completed around 400 B.C., We have an extant copy of the Old Testament from about 980 A.D., about 1,400 years distance between our first copy and when the writing was complete, the documents that we know of as the Old Testament. Long ago, somewhere in the mid-1900s, C. Sanders, professor of history, wrote Introduction to Research in English Literary History. And it explains very clearly with great detail tests that we can apply to any document that would help us to determine its veracity, its reliability. And those three tests are the bibliographical test, the internal test, the external test, and we can add to that now because of modern technology. We can add to those a study of archaeology now as well. The bibliographical test is the examination of the transmission of the text. In other words, what was the process of copying, translations, and so on? Since we don't have the original documents, how reliable are the copies that we have in regard to the number of manuscripts that exist and the time interval between the original and the extant copy, the copies that we might have? We're going to have to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament in a little bit of a different light because the Old Testament was written in a very different way and it was processed and passed forward in a very different way than the New Testament. The internal test talks about the internal consistency of the book of the Bible. Does it contradict itself? Then we'll talk about the external test, which relates the Bible to any other ancient documents that were written at the same time. Are there other documents that would confirm or maybe even deny the historicity of the documents in question? 
the bibliographical test first, the manuscript evidence, the numbers of copies that were made, and how close those copies are to the original. There's a book called The Bible and Archaeology. Kenyon, the author, writes about the interval between the dates of the original composition of the books of the New Testament and then the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded now as finally established. Harold Greenlee wrote, another professor of history, the number of available manuscripts of the New Testament is overwhelmingly greater than those of any other work of ancient literature. Now, this is an interesting point about the test of bibliography. Some people say, well, with all those copies, surely that counts against the Bible. Uh, 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 uh. The number of extant copies is actually an advantage when it comes to assessing the reliability of the texts and reconstructing the original text without getting caught in huge numbers of extant copies that we have. I'll do a comparison here between the great classic work of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, written in 900 B.C., The New Testament was written 4275 A.D. in the time of Christ. The Iliad, the earliest copy we have, is 400 B.C. That's 500 years of separation. The earliest copy we have of the New Testament is 125 A.D., negligible, as I just read to you from one of the great historians a moment ago. The number of copies that we have of the Iliad and the Odyssey, 643 copies that they can rely upon and use establishing the accuracy of what we now think of as the work of Homer. In the New Testament, in contrast to 643 copies, there are over 24,000 copies. That is a tremendous advantage in terms of our ability to compare and establish what is that original text. Next to the New Testament, there are more extant manuscripts of the Iliad than any other book, and that's why we chose the Iliad here as our comparison. The New Testament has about 20,000 lines. The Iliad has about 15,600. Only 40 lines, about 400 words of the entire New Testament, are in doubt whereas 764 lines of the Iliad are questioned. That's a 5% textual corruption, comparing with one-half of 1% of similar corruption or changes in the New Testament text as we look back over those. Those changes, what are they? You can actually have a list of them. Sometimes a preposition, sometimes a name that has changed in the way that names have been pronounced and used from the Greek to the Hebrew and so on. But the New Testament is ripe with plenty of extant copies that we can use comparing copies of the versions now extant, and we can tell if the text we have today is reliable and accurate. It gives us a sense of the kinds of changes that might have taken place. That's the New Testament. The New Testament is incredibly rich in this kind of evidence. Without any hesitation or doubt, the historicity of the New Testament is so very clearly and powerfully established. The Old Testament is different because it has a different history of transmission. It was written over a longer period of time, of course. We don't have the abundance of close manuscript authority as in the New Testament. But something has happened just in the last hundred years. One of the most fascinating tales of modern times. In February or March of 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad, <laughs> the irony is not lost on any of us, was searching for a lost goat out in the desert at the southern end of the Dead Sea. He tossed a stone into a cave up on a cliff on the west side of the Dead Sea, about eight miles south of Jericho. And to his surprise, he heard the sound of shattering pottery. Something broke. 
So he climbed up on the cliff to investigate, and he discovered an amazing sight. On the floor of that cave were several large jars containing leather scrolls wrapped in linen cloth. Because the jars were carefully sealed, the scrolls had been preserved in excellent condition for nearly 1,900 years, placed there somewhere around 68 to 90 A.D., in the time of Christ, in the first century. Placed there, not written, but placed there. No publicity was given them for some years. Dr. W.F. Albright of John Hopkins University, recognized as the Dean of American Biblical Archaeologists, was the one who first recognized the greatness of this discovery. He dated the manuscript from 100 years before Christ. This discovery, called the Dead Sea Scrolls, gave a tremendous boost to our understanding of the Old Testament from the bibliographical test, the way it was passed to us. For example, there were two copies of Isaiah discovered in the Qumran Cave Number 1 in 1947. They were dated, as I said to you, a thousand years earlier than the oldest manuscript previously known, 980 A.D. Remember I told you there had been a 1,300-year distance between the finishing of the Hebrew canon in 400 B.C. and the earliest extant manuscript we had in 980 A.D. Now this one discovery shot it forward a thousand years. The entire book of Isaiah was in the Qumran Cave 1. Are we going to find in those thousand years then that there were tremendous changes in the document? Not to worry. The two copies of Isaiah proved to be word-for-word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. And the 5% of the variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and or variations in spelling of names, as I had mentioned before. Even those Dead Sea fragments of Deuteronomy and Samuel, which point to a different manuscript family, different history, they do not indicate any differences in doctrine or teaching. They do not affect the message of revelation in the slide. That written by Gleason Archer, one of the historians who worked with those first documents that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The scrolls were made up of 40,000 inscribed fragments, out of which more than 500 books have been reconstructed. There were also extra-biblical books and fragments discovered there as well. What would happen is these would be formatted, copied, and cataloged, and then they were sent to historians. While I was in Spain, I met a priest there who was one of those who received some of the original fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls. He helped to co-author a book called The First New Testament because he found fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls that could not be identified from any Old Testament passage. The First New Testament shows copies of these fragments. Their job was to look at the Greek or the Hebrew text to try to discern what did this come from. They have to know the Greek and the Hebrew text of the Old and New Testaments by exact memory. Maybe there's three or four words and a portion of two other words on a given fragment, and they have to try to decide where did that come from. This priest, the scholar, was the first to describe at least one of those fragments, and then there were a series that came after it, with a New Testament passage from the Gospel of Mark, bringing the date for the New Testaments back to 65 to 70 A.D., pushing it even closer, almost as we could be, to having original text, especially from the Gospel of Mark. All of this is called the bibliographical test. Now, the internal test talks about contradictions. Now, you have to remember about this. John Warwick Montgomery wrote that literary critics still follow Aristotle's dictum that the benefit of the doubt must be given to the document itself, not arrogated by the critic to himself. So, in other words, a difficulty does not constitute an error. 
Unsolved problems are not necessarily errors. Many times there were difficulties in the text in the New Testament. And then with time, with study, and with more information, we have found that there is a perfectly good explanation and no contradiction. We have to listen to the claim of the document under analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself by known factual inaccuracies. Just think for a moment, folks, about what needs to be demonstrated to be called a difficulty or a contradiction in the Bible. Certainly more must be required than just the appearance of a contradiction or just the accusation. First, we must be certain that we have correctly understood the passage, the sense in which it uses words or numbers. Second, that we possess all available knowledge on this matter, all the input that we could use. Third, that no further light can possibly be thrown on it by other discoveries that could be made. I remember they used to have a problem with the walls of Jericho falling outward. That was put down for years that that wouldn't be the way it would happen, and it must not be factually true until an archaeologist discovered, in fact, that the walls of Jericho had indeed fallen outward. Garstang found something so startling that a statement of what was found was prepared and signed by himself and two other members of the team. As to the main fact, then, there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over their ruins into the city. That's a quote from the archaeologist who made that discovery back in the early 1900s. That and the discovery of the people groups called the Horites, the Tower of Babel, and the Old Testament version of how languages came about. There are many philologists now who attest to the likelihood of such an origin for the world's languages. Remember, though, that we have eyewitness sources, particularly and especially for the New Testament, and the distance of the time of the writing to the events is very short. So the internal evidence is very strong for both Old and New Testaments, again, for different reasons and from different sources. The external evidence, the extra-biblical writings of other authors, other writings of the time, and we can compare what was written in their records, the records of the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. They had writings and histories that were preserved and that we are finding, and we can compare them with the names and the events of the Bible itself. Folks, that's what we have to share tonight about the historicity. I hope it's helpful to you. There's lots more reading and studying and research you can find, but you will find that that book you have in front of of you is essentially the book that was written by Moses, by Abraham, by the prophets, by the authors of the New Testament as well. You can trust that Bible and its powerful, wonderful message. See you next time.